0: Well, Arnold Schwarzenegger was born in the rural mountain town of Tull in Austria. Uh, he had something in him, though, that stirred him to believe that he was destined for greatness. He had a stirring in him that he wanted to be an American. Not only that, he wanted to be a movie star. And so he didn't have much going for him. He had no acting experience or history. He didn't have any money or a visa or a job, but what he did have is muscles. And so he decided to parlay his muscles into this plan of his to become an American movie star. And he just thought if I could get as big as I possibly could I would win Mr. Olympian, Mr. Universe, Mr. World, which he did. And then I would be the logical choice to play Hercules in a Hollywood movie. And if you know anything about Schwarzenegger's life, you know that's exactly what happened. Uh, He joined the military. He was conscripted to the military, but he chose the tank division because that would give him the most time to work out and build his muscles. They also had better protein um, in the army than he was used to, so he got really big. And he went AWOL one day to go to a competition, which he did very well in, and eventually he would become Mr. Universe, and eventually he would become Hercules. He could not speak English, though. Uh, His accent was so strong, it was unintelligible, and so they had to dub his voice over for his first movie. It's really fun to go and watch that. And then he was chosen to play Conan the Barbarian, again because of his muscles, except the director told him he had to lose some of his weight because... He just looked even bigger on camera, and that was too big. And he eventually, by the 90s, became the highest-paid action hero in all of Hollywood. And then he married into the Kennedy family. Um, He ended up owning several businesses and uh, real estate. He became a politician and, as you know, became governor of the great state of California... And all of this is not bad for a kid from the rural town of Thal in Austria. He just had this inexplicable drive, the stirring within him, that that's what he wanted, that this was his destiny, that was his vision. And he did everything to attain that and was able to do it. He became a person that was very powerful, not only physically, but politically as well. And, of course, very well-known, very influential. And is a really good example, mostly... But Arnold Schwarzenegger has weakness, women. And when he was running for governor, uh, during the campaign, several women came forward claiming that he had harassed them in various ways over the years, and he admitted that he had done that. Uh, later on, after putting that scandal behind him and, and managed to to become governor, uh, journalists started noticing that his housekeeper's son looked exactly like a teenage Arnold and put two and two together, and sure enough, he admitted to having an affair with his housekeeper. His wife, Maria Shriver, divorced him, and he was just not a good example as far as his morals. Um, as, a, as a family man, as a husband, uh, he had another weakness as well, not just women, but Cuban cigars. He loved cigars, and not just cigars, but Cuban cigars, which at the time were under the embargo, and therefore they were illegal. And yet he was photographed many times smoking Cuban cigars. And a journalist once asked him, what kind of example are you setting by smoking these cigars? Remember, at this point, he was called the Tsar of Fitness. He was part of the Presidential Council on Health and Fitness. He was well-known worldwide for um, campaigning for fitness, and yet he was almost always seen smoking and smoking these illegal cigars. And so when the journalist asked him, what kind of example are you to smoke these cigars, he said, I don't smoke it to be an example. I smoke it because it's a fantastic cigar. (laughs) I mean, that's his logic. He's like, I'm not trying to be an example here. I'm just being me, and I do what feels good to me, and you can follow that or not follow that. And that's just kind of how he lived his life. And so we're going to meet tonight another Leader that was known for his muscles, and not his morals. One who is a good example in some areas and a very poor example in other areas. A man who had great power and also had a weakness of women. I'm speaking, of course, of Samson. So turn your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel. Judges chapter 12. Before we get into chapter 13, there's a little loose end. In chapter 12, we need to tie up. You'll remember that this is after the judge of Jephthah. Jephthah made a vow that he should not have kept, but he kept his vow and ended up sacrificing his daughter, a new low point in the spiritual darkness of Israel in a time when people, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As people don't know the word of God, they do what they think pleases God, and they end up displeasing God. Well, Jephthah passes, and then we have a few other judges before the time of Samson, and that summary is found in chapter 12 in verse 8. So after him, after Jephthah, who judged Israel for six years, um, Isban of Bethlehem judged Israel. This is the first person in the Bible mentioned to come from Bethlehem, by the way. Uh, His name means swift. Isban from Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave in marriage outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons, and he judged Israel seven years. Then Isban died, and he was buried at Bethlehem. Not much to say about that except what can you tell about Isban from the number of children he has? He had many wives. So this again is something that the pagan kings would do. The pagan kings would multiply their wives. Deuteronomy forbid Israel's leaders from doing that. And yet here you have a man doing that. And so he has all of these children. <clears throat> He's also intermarrying from people from outside, which is another thing pagan kings would do. Anyway, Isban dies, verse 11. After him... Elon, the Zebulunite judged Israel. He judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died, and he was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulon. Not much to say there, except there's only one person I know named after Elon. Elon Musk. And um, the name Elon means oak. And the only thing worth mentioning there is that he, being from Zebulon, is buried in Zebulon, which is just a way of saying that he was a ruler of that particular area and died the ruler of that area. Um... After him, verse 13, Abdon, his name means service, the son of Hillel, the parathonite, judged Israel. And he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. And he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the parathonite, died and he was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. And so the fact that he has all of these sons and grandsons and was able to provide them with donkeys, uh, again, it shows he's got multiple wives, he is taking care of generations, he's buying all of his grandkids a car. You know, this was a wealthy person, he was established in this area, that's all we know about them. Nothing else is said of these people in scripture. But now we get to Samson. Chapter 13, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. This is part of the cycle of judges. The people do evil. God then raises up a nation and allows that nation to oppress them. We've seen the Midianites. We've seen the Amalekites. Now we're seeing a new group called the Philistines. And this lasts for 40 years. Notice that the time of oppression gets longer and longer. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites. Whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Just stop there for a moment. The fact that he's from Dan is important. The book of Judges begins with the Danites and ends with the Danites, and shows that the Danites are pretty much a bunch of lost boys. They're just they're a lost tribe, they're wandering around, they're trying to establish themselves, and there's always a problem. And their land has now been taken over by a seafaring people. Think, you know, ancient Vikings that come from the Phoenician um, type of military method, which was on these big boats and they would go and raid towns. And they've taken the coast, the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and they've named it Philistia. And so this is a part of the promised land that is completely occupied by the Philistines. The Philistines had five cities, um, Ekron, Ajalon, Gath, Gaza, and another one with an A, which it'll come to me in a moment. Anyway, they had these five cities, and they were entrenched on the coast, and they had dispossessed the Danites of their land, and so the Danites have to live with everyone else. So the fact that Samson is from the tribe of Dan is important. So you have this miraculous conception. Verse 4, Therefore the angel says to this woman, Be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. So then drink no wine or strong drink, eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb till the day of his death. So I'll get into a moment what a Nazarite is there. Just notice that it's a permanent state from the time before he's born all the way till his death. It's not a temporary thing. Notice, too, that the angel comes to not Manoah, but his wife. This is important. I, I'm not quite sure what the message is being sent here, except that my guess is the Philistines were known for bringing a new god into Israel. In fact, a goddess. Her name was Ashtera, And so the Ashtaroth, the plural of Ashtera, were goddesses that the Israelites started worshiping because of the Philistines. And she was a goddess of fertility. And so here you have a barren woman living in this area that the Philistines occupy that worship a goddess of fertility, and she's not fertile. But the angel of the Lord comes and says, I'm going to make you fertile, and I'm going to give you a child. And so that's why he comes to this woman. So verse 8, Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, O oh Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman, as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? In other words, this is obviously going to be a very special child. What's he to do? Verse 13, the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask me my name, seeing that it's wonderful? Uh, the Hebrew word, therefore, wonderful means um, beyond your expectations. Don't ask me my name. It's, it's, you can't handle my name. <laughs> so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh to the one who works wonders. That's the same word, by the way, for his name is wonderful, to the one who does these wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground, and the angel of Yahweh appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahendan between Zorah and Eshtahol. So this is just a great story and, and uh, very mysterious, and we're not sure what's going on in this character, possibly a, a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ. Some would say that's, if you look up the, the phrase angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh throughout the Old Testament, it's this um, physical appearance uh, that accepts worship. And, and here he says, don't ask me my name. We're not going there, and I'm not going to eat with you. We're not at that stage yet where we can be in fellowship. This nation of mine is in turmoil, They are in rebellion, and they, for the first time in the book of Judges, are not even calling for a savior, but God is initiating. And so this angel comes, and he gives him this message, and you can see here that Samson gets his brains from his dad, or shall we say lack of brains, because the dad's like, we've seen the Lord, we're going to die, and the mom's like, well, he just told us we're going to have a baby, so we're good for the next nine months, you know. so she's the one that's thinking this through. Manoah doesn't know what's going on. I, I don't think he's showing much doubt here. He's just, he's confused. Uh, what is this? What shall we do? The angel goes back, not to him, but to the woman, and gives no new information and just says, what I told her was enough. Let me, let me just tell you to do what I told her. And so God is working here through this woman in this culture where this goddess of fertility is being worshiped, almost like, so you you want to give your power to these female goddesses? Well, then I'm not even going to come and speak to the husband, I'm going to speak to the wife. You know, there's that sort of uh, intersection of what's going on in their personal life with what's going on with uh, with the nation. And they didn't appear to ask for this child, they don't say, God has heard our prayers, this is a complete surprise to them, in the same way that the nation of Israel is not asking for a savior. But tonight we're going to see God's action and our reaction And see how those two work together. God's action and our reaction. So, firstly, in God's action, in verse 1, we see the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And just to remind you that there's this constant cycle of the people sinning, them being invaded... They get fed up with it. Uh, They feel sorry. They cry out to God. They repent. He raises up an individual who usually leads an army. And the army then overthrows the whole nation and delivers them. And then the people worship Yahweh for a short time and then they forget and they start sinning and it's rinse and repeat. And that's the cycle of the judges. But what we have here for the first time is the nation not calling out for a savior. And for the first time, we have the judge being raised up has no backup. There's no... um, You know, Jephthah had his band of merry men. And Gideon had his elite force of 300. And even Ehud had his backup army to come and mop up the the opposing armies. All of the judges lead armies. Barak and Deborah as well. But here we have a new judge and he's on his own. He is a one-man army. He is the... He's the Rambo, you know, of the Bible. And so he's going to need, well, he's going to need muscles, okay? He's going he's to need to be strong. If he's the only one going up against the entire Philistine force and constantly defeat them, God gives him the supernatural strength, which is not mentioned to Manoah and his wife. So they don't know that that's coming. But here we see God initiating the salvation of his people by raising up this deliverer. The Philistines, as I said, are a seafaring nation. They were descendants of Ham, not Shem. So they are not uh, Semite people. So the Semite people are, you know, you've got the Israelites, you've got the Ishmaelites, you've got a lot of those ites that kind of come from Shem after the flood, you know, Noah's sons, but these people come from a completely different line, Ham. So they're, they're very different. They're alien invaders. They are not from this part of the world. They've come across the Mediterranean because they're seafaring. As I say, they brought the, the Ashtoreth with them. They occupied Israel in the early Bronze Age. And they are known for the, the... The way they are depicted in murals of the time, they had a unique look about them. So you can always tell... Philistines if we go to a museum in Israel when we go visit there you will be able to spot them they have lots of murals that have survived with Philistines in them and you can always tell the Philistines by three things they have round shields little round shields like Captain America right or like the Vikings would have which is different from the long body-length shields. And this is because these were sea people, like the Vikings, you know? So they had their little shield on the boat. And they would fight. They would be able to jump off and swim to land with it. And they can't have a big, heavy shield. So they would have these little round shields, and you always see that in the mural. They had very long spears. That was their weapon of choice. Not bow and arrow, but spears. And this is the other thing, and this is key. You can still see this to this day. The murals that show what Philistines look like showed that they all had... Cropped hair. They had short haircuts. And they were the only people in those days that had short haircuts. Everyone else had, you know, men wore their hair down to their shoulders. Women wore their hair down to their waist. Philistines, well, the Philistine men wore their hair cropped short. Like, well, um, maybe not that short. But, but, you know, a, a man's haircut today, which is normal for us. And so you see why that's key. Because here you have the nation of Israel that is living in Philistia and they are integrating with Philistia and they're worshiping Philistia's gods and they're trying to blend in with Philistia and you have this one man that is raised up out of them and the rule is he's not allowed to cut his hair. And so he's never going to fit in. As long as he keeps his hair long, he's going to be the sole thumb at every party. Everyone else is going to have their little barbershop cut and he's going to have hair down to his waist and beyond for the rest of his life, because of this vow. The five cities were uh, Ashkelon, and that was the other one. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. And those names, the only other place you're going to see them is whenever the Philistines are mentioned. Can you think of a a famous Philistine? Like a big King Kong character, Goliath, and he was from Gath, right. So Gath, Gath's where I lived when I was on a kibbutz there, so um, that's the, the Philistine area. And you'll remember from the book of Samuel, which is you know, still coming in the future from the judges, that the Ark of the Covenant is put on a cart and is moved around by the Philistines from city to city and it goes to these five cities and that's where tumors break out because the Ark of the Covenant is in Philistia. Um, the other god that they worshipped was the fish god. Anyone know Trivial Pursuit questions, the fish god's name? Dagon, Dagon yeah, Dagon the fish god. You also learn that in Samuel. Um, he was a, a man with a fish head. And um, a dog in Hebrew, D-A-G, is, is a fish. It's the thing that swallowed Jonah, is a dog. And so he's Dagon. And they were worshipping these, these gods rather than Yahweh. I wonder if in your life you've ever been like the Israelites. The way they were here in Judges. Where they're kind of just sitting in their sin. They're just stewing in it. To them, they're, they're just getting on with life. They're not even crying out. There, there's this oppression. They're living in, under the thumb of a foreign people. And they're not even asking for deliverance. This is happening in the promised land. All the Danites had to do is say, Lord, we want our land back. And and this is promised land. This was their right. God would empower them to do this as he had done with, with Joshua. But they don't even bother. They're just sitting, stewing in their sin. We'd rather have Philistine invaders enslave us than worship Yahweh, is what they're saying. So, good for Israel and good for us that we serve a God who initiates salvation that even when we are stewing in our sin, He's not going to leave us there. He's going to draw that to a point of exposure so that He can deal with that sin. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Not even one. But then Romans 5 tells us in verse 8, But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10 says, I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This is the God that we serve. He initiates our salvation in the same way he initiated the deliverance of Israel. And so he does this. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites. His name was Manoah. His wife was barren and had no children. The angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you're barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son there is a lot of parallel between what's happening here with Samson's birth announcement and the birth announcement of Jesus. An angel comes and tells a woman who has no business having a baby that she's going to have a baby and that this baby is going to be the deliverer of his people and that this is something that God is initiating and God will use his supernatural power to make this work. And Samson We know nothing about his childhood, just like we know nothing about Christ's childhood. Kind of skip scene to the last three years of his life. And all of the action happens during that time, just like with Jesus. So the person of Samson is going to be a living example of how God uses flawed people to accomplish his will and work in the world. So all of these judges are kind of foreshadowing the Messiah who's going to come, the deliverer, the savior because remember the judges are called saviors but they, they save their people physically but they can't do it spiritually and the saviors themselves are all flawed and they just appear to become, be getting more and more flawed as we go in, deeper into the, the book of judges and now we're going to see a new low point the worst example so far <laughs> Of a judge that's been called by God to deliver his people. And it's Samson. Samson's only usefulness to God is going to come from the strength that God gives him. Samson isn't even particularly um, driven by the desire to be obedient. He's not even particularly aware of what God wants him to do and wanting to do it. So God, using providence, orchestrates circumstances that prod. Samson into doing what God wants him to do. And so you're going to see things like Samson makes a foolish choice, but it was of the Lord. It was of the Lord. So even Samson's folly, Samson's sin is of the Lord to do what he's meant to do, which is to single-handedly drive out the Philistines, to defeat them. So Samson's going to use and abuse the strength that God gives him, and God's going to take it away from him and give it back to him once he's been humbled. And we're going to see that Samson has great power physically and through influence, but he has a great weakness. And that weakness is women. Over and over, you're going to see him make decisions based on his lust that eventually lead to his downfall. And yet God still uses that. Samson's sexual appetite will be the death of him, literally. This underscores that the birth announcement that's coming to the woman here in the midst of a culture that's worshiping the feminine deity, it's the woman that is ultimately the downfall of the hero of the story. It's quite an interesting thing. So this is God's action. We see him initiating this deliverance. Now we move on to the human reaction. What's the human responsibility in all of this? Well, in verse 6 we see this woman take this uh, announcement to her husband, and you know the story of what happens in verse 13. The angel of the Lord says to Mano, all of what I said to the woman, let her be careful that she may not eat anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. All that I command her, let her observe. And when he spoke to the woman, he said to her earlier that he was going to be a Nazarite. That's in verse um, 7. Eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and she says, to the day of his death. This is a permanent vow. So a couple of things happen here. The woman, uh, the husband wants more information. The angel shows up, gives him no more information. I kind of like that because we always want a little bit more information, don't we? We always want to understand a little bit better of what's expected of us or what's going on here, and and the angel really doesn't. He says, this is a need-to-know thing. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of everything. All you need to know is this is what's going to happen. God wants us to trust and obey him. So the only thing they're really told about Samson is that he's going to deliver his people from Philistia, and therefore he needs to be a Nazarite. Now, I want you to turn to Numbers, chapter 6. i go back to the Pentateuch. To Numbers, after Leviticus and before Deuteronomy. And just to clarify, a Nazarite is not a Nazarene. A Nazarene is a person from the town of Nazareth. So Jesus was a Nazarene. He was not a Nazarite. In fact, there's only one Nazarite mentioned in the New Testament, and that is Jesus' relative, John the Baptist, was a Nazarite. So what is a Nazarite? Well, you're about to become an expert on Nazarites because this is the only information about Nazarites in the Bible, um, Numbers chapter 6. The word Nazarite, it, it comes from a word that means holy or set apart. Um, it's also used of vines that were not pruned. They were, they were Nazarite vines. The vines that you just leave and they kind of grow and they were shabby and unkept. So um, that's why this is called a Nazarite vow because you'll see the, the unkept hair, shabby, long, uncut hair is part of this vow. Um, by the way, we know that Jesus wasn't a Nazarite. Why? How do you know Jesus... Because he drank wine. That's right. So Jesus drank wine. So he was not a Nazarite, nor was he a Baptist. Um, Okay, so in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1, you've got this. Listen carefully to the stipulations of the Nazarite vow. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to Yahweh, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, which is probably beer, in in their case, Um, they didn't have distilled drinks, so don't think, you know, liquor. Um, He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried, so not even raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head. Until the time is completed for which he separates himself to Yahweh, he shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair, of his head, grow long. All the days that he separates himself to Yahweh, he shall not go near a dead body. Not even for his father or his mother or brother or sister, if they die, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to Yahweh. If any man dies... Very suddenly, beside him, and he defiles himself, his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing, and on the seventh day he shall shave it, and on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves and two pigeons to the priest in the entrance of meeting. And it goes on and on about, you know, the male lamb, and then there's a, you know, it's a big big deal (laughs) if he breaks his vow. Um, And then for the rest of the chapter, it's kind of going on how the... um, The boiling must happen and all that. And then at the end of verse 20, it says that now he can drink wine after that's happened because he's no longer under his vow after he's done all of this. And to start his vow over, he needs to shave his head and start from scratch. Okay, so what we know about Nazarite vows, you don't see a lot of it in Scripture, but we know from history the way the Jews applied this was if there was a... You could make a Nazirite vow for anything. Anything that, where you wanted to consecrate yourself for a specific task, you would make a Nazirite vow. And you'd say, I'm not going to cut my hair until this thing is done. It was always voluntary. It was always temporary. And it could be a man or a woman, but in history it was usually men. And it was usually when they went off to war. So if they knew that they were going to war, they would say, I'm going to take a Nazirite vow from now until the time of war. Because they were preparing themselves for death and so you would you would leave out wine and strong drink which in those days was a big deal because they didn't have anything else (laughs) you know they would drink water and the highlight of their day was their sundowner you know their little glass of wine and now they can't have wine so they're really saying I'm giving up my only culinary delight but it was more than that it had anything to do with with grapes the Nazarite couldn't have of course couldn't cut his hair and the other thing is he couldn't go near a dead body not even his own family he couldn't go to the funeral he couldn't be near a dead body and if he at any point breaks his vow he has to start over and he shaves his head and he you know has to do the whole sacrifice thing and it's this big deal even if it's unintentional even if a guy you know you're sitting in the pew and the person next to you has a heart attack you're like oh i was two days away from the end of my vow oh well, i got to go shave my head and do the whole thing and start over and start the year from scratch. That's that's how strict this was. And so it wasn't used a lot in Israel's day, but he is the most um, uh, graphic illustration of it, Samson is. You can go back to Judges. So Samson's vow is quite unique in that it's made for him. It's not voluntary, it's made before he's even born. It's not for a specific period of time, it's his whole life. From while he's in the womb, his mom can't even um, drink wine, or have grapes, or anything. And it granted him this superhuman power, which we later find out is linked to the vow, and when the vow is broken and his head is shaved, he loses his power until he's humbled, and then it comes back when his hair grows back. So, the power that God gives him is a supernatural power, that's clear. So I, I know I mentioned, you know, I'm kind of drawing a parallel between him and Arnold Schwarzenegger, but my theory is, Samson didn't have big muscles. If I were gonna do a movie of Samson's life, I would not cast Arnold Schwarzenegger. I would cast like, I don't know, like Ed Norton or someone, you know, Brad Pitt, someone who's good looking and has good hair, but he's kind of wiry, but ripped. Um, that's who I would cost. I think that he had small muscles because, firstly, his strength has nothing to do with how much he can bench press. His strength is entirely supernatural. I mean, we're not talking about a guy who can deadlift any more than anyone else. We're talking about a guy who can lift a Land Rover over his head and hike a marathon distance and then dump it at a gate. We're going to see that later. Um, not the Land Rover part, but the weight of the gates. Like, this is absolutely supernatural, what this guy can do. So it's not because of his muscles, firstly. And secondly, the Philistines seem absolutely mystified by how this guy could be strong. And they keep trying to find out what is the secret of his strength. Now, it could just be that level of strength. But even when they attack him and stuff, it's like it doesn't feel like they're attacking this huge combat veteran. You know, like They're attacking a scrawny guy, the kind of things that they do with him, and yet he just always whips them. So the point here is that he had this unique vow with this unique ability for a unique calling to deliver Israel from the Philistines. But this one-man army has a problem. Does he keep his vow? I mean, there's only three things he has to do. Not cut his hair, not drink any alcohol, and not go near a dead body. Well, we know, you know, I hope this isn't a spoiler for anybody. He gets a haircut at some point. Uh, but before that, you know, he he parties at his bachelor's party. and He drinks there. And he is near a dead body all the time <laughs> because he's killing people. He's like a serial killer. He's constantly killing people. He's, he's picking up the jawbone of a dead donkey. He's in the carcass of a dead lion. He's not supposed to eat any unclean thing. He's eating honey out of a dead animal. Roadkill was not part of the kosher diet. And he just he doesn't care about his vow. He doesn't care at all. He doesn't, I think he doesn't even believe that his supernatural strength is linked to any of this stuff. But he drinks, he touches dead bodies, and when he breaks the third part of his vow and gets his hair cut, and we'll go into that in some depth of why he did that. You know, spoiler alert, sin makes you stupid. Um, And he gets his hair cut at that moment, the vow is completely broken, and God abandons him from the supernatural strength point of view until he is humbled. So, we see that his moral failure happens on every level his his muscles are not really anything we can emulate and his morals are nothing we should emulate either but god uses him god uses his strength and his weakness to accomplish god's will and god can use you in the same way he can use the strengths and gifts that he gives you but he can also use your weaknesses And you need to remember that. And remember if you feel like you've blown it. Remember if you you ever feel like uh, there's no going back. God can take whatever's happened, whatever you give him, and he can use that for his will. But you have to ask yourself, what's your reaction? God is going to initiate this, but do you want to be used by God in spite of your disobedience or because of your obedience? Do you want to be used... Through your obedience, have God use you, or through your disobedience? Ask yourself this. Do you like to fit into your culture so well that no one can tell you apart? I mean, we don't have Nazarites today, but let me read you a few passages from the New Testament about being different from the people that we're around. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. The Lord knows who are His. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy and useful to the master, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and do not be conformed to this world. In other words, be a Nazarite. Set yourself apart. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your set-apartness, that you may abstain from sexual immorality. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He has 1 Peter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct conduct, since it's written, be holy for I am holy. You see how this is a New Testament theme? That we as God's people are supposed to be set apart from our culture, not be conformed to this world, not be conformed to our our youthful passions and lusts. Samson is the poster boy for the type of person we should avoid being. A person who wants to blend in, a person who, who is following his passions and lusts, whereas God wanted him to be set apart. So now, I'm not saying you all have to grow your hair, but be a Nazarite for Jesus. Be willing to stand out in the office. Be willing to stand out in your family, in your friendship circles. is the one that is set apart in your, in your dorm room, and your, your college lecture hall. Be the one that's willing to stand up for Christ and do the right thing. To, to stand out by the way that you dress, and the way that you speak, and the way... The things you eat and drink and won't eat and drink and the way you conduct yourself and be holy and pursue righteousness and do not give in to your sinful passions. And that way you can be a true Nazarite. So, what you see in number six is that the Nazarite, when he breaks his vow, he's in trouble and he needs atonement. And so a lot of animals end up dying. Turtle doves and lambs and goats end up dying to cover the breaking of his vow so that he can start over. Even if it happened accidentally and somebody dies next to him. Well, for us, we're going to fall short all the time, aren't we? Just like Samson. We're going we're to break our vow to, that we make to the Lord to, to obey him. And we're going to do that daily. But we have a sacrifice that covers for us. We don't need to go to the temple and do all of those sacrifices over and over. Because Jesus Christ died for us. He is the rescuer. He is the Messiah. And so each of these judges is an iteration of somebody who's delivering their people but falls short and is flawed and can't do the job fully and can't do it permanently until we get to the New Testament and we meet the real Savior, Jesus Christ, who fulfills everything perfectly, never makes any mistakes, lives a perfect life of righteousness, and then gives that righteousness to us to make us worthy to be with him forever and takes our son away from us. So, even though things are bad here in Israel at this point, there is a deliverer on his way, and you can imagine Manoah and his wife thinking, is this the Messiah? Is this, I mean, angelic birth announcement, miraculous conception, the promise of the deliverance of our people, is our son going to be the Messiah? And then, Samson. And every judge that comes along, the people are, is this him? Is he the one? And so I want you to sit with that anticipation, the anticipation of an angelic announcement, a miraculous conception, a dedicated child, a promise of deliverance, until next week, when we will be truly disappointed. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the reminder that we should not put our faith in people, that we will always be disappointed, and that the only one that lifts us up from our miry sin, and washes us permanently as Jesus Christ. And so we worship you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for what you've done for us. And we dedicate ourselves to you afresh tonight, so that this week we would live holy lives for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.